so again, I'm sure you know this, but I have a daughter um, and a son, but my daughter is named Emery. She's three and a half years old. And when we first moved to Colorado, uh, Emery was like nine months old. And when she was nine months old, my wife so diligently took her every day to the library. And at the library, uh, every day, she would go to the library, and there was a bunch of other moms and other kids who were the same exact age as Emery. They were all like toddlers and babies, and they were all having fun together because they were at the library, and they would have story time. And so it's really fun. I would go sometimes, but uh, usually it was my wife. You would sit down with your kid, and there would be a librarian who would read a bunch of stories and play games with the kids. And it's funny because all these other kids in that room, they got to know each other. And more importantly, the moms in that room got to know each other. And thankfully, in our day and age, uh, they all had cell phones and they all exchanged numbers. And this was about two, two and a half years ago, really. Um, they would all get together and they would have these play dates. And I don't know if you know about play dates, but play dates are an integral part of the social life of toddlers. Um, and, and, and these kids would gather together and it was almost, almost always just the mothers. Um, that would be at these play dates. The dads were always doing other things like work or, or just, doing, just, just off doing their own hobbies and, and whatnot. And this was my, myself included. I would rarely go to these play dates. It's kind of one of those things where it would be like, why do you even want to go to these things? You know, it's just, it's such a drag. And um, as dads, the only other time the, the dads would ever interact is the kids' birthday parties. And kids' birthday parties are, are a lot of fun for the kids, but when you're a dad and you don't know the other dads, you don't know anyone else. You kind of go there and you want to be as cool as possible. You don't want to be the dork. You go, hey, hey, what's up? Yeah, hey. Um, my kid, that's my kid. Um, yeah, that's mine. Uh, okay. And that's it. And then that's kind of how all the interactions are. And so as you can imagine, whenever the birthday parties come up for this play group, um, because I don't know the dads. They don't go to our church. I don't see them on a week-to-week basis. Uh, I see them like every, you know, once a, like once a season kind of, kind of deal. It's always awkward. But some of these dads had this great idea because the moms were starting to hang out. Now that our kids are a little older, the moms would start hanging out without the kids because it wasn't about play dates. It was just about moms kind of hanging out and, and doing their thing. So the dads were like, hey, why don't we get our own day? And so I remember I got this big text, uh, this big group of, of all these dads, and they were like, hey, let's, let's all gather together for like um, just, just to hang out. And I remember I got that text, and I was like, Grace, do I have to go? And she's like, no, you don't have to go. I was like, but I feel like I should go, right? Like, I, I need to go. These are Emery's friends, and it's the dads, and I never hang out with them. I never spend time with them. I should go. And you guys are like, yeah, you can go. Go if you want. If you don't want to go, you don't have to. I was like, ah, I should go. And so I go, and I, I, go, to this, I go to this place, and, and, and all the dads are there, and it's like 10, 10 dads. And we're all just sitting, sitting around a table, and we're just talking and kind of getting to know each other. And, and surprisingly, it's pretty fun. It's like very enjoyable to talk to other dads with kids the same age. And it's really funny because as we're having this, this conversation, as we're just talking with one another and just hanging out, I just think of my small group. And I'm like, this feels so eerily similar to my small group. I mean, there's a lot more cursing involved because they're not Christian. And so there's a lot more like guy talk um, than our, our church small group. But I was like, man, this feels so much like my small group. A lot of these guys would just fit right in with my small group because of the conversations we're having. And to give you a kind of a, a little taste of what we're talking about, like for the first like, 30 minutes, we're just talking about fantasy football. And, and I don't even play fantasy football, but I was just talking to them about the various NFL teams and we we're just going deep into it. And I was like, man, this is, this is just like even the conversations I have at church with the other men. 
And then something, and then a point always comes, and I've talked about this before, but a point always comes in the conversation, especially with non-believers, and most of, pretty much all of these guys were non-believers. I think one guy was Catholic, but because they're mostly non-believers, the conversation always turns to, so what do you do for a living? And kind of go around, and everyone like, kind of says what they do, and it's like, you know, oh, that's cool, you're a doctor, oh, you're a lawyer, oh, you know, you're a teacher, you're all these things, and it comes to me, and it's like, so what do you do? Jeremy, what, what, what do you do? I'm a pastor. And you could see the moment I say I'm a pastor, their face changes. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. So like a priest? <laughs> and that's kind of how they go. And I'm like, no, no. I, I, I kind of backstep and I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, I promise I'm cool. Like, I, I promise. I, like, don't kick me out of this group. Like, I'm not here to absolve your sins. I'm not here to make you feel real bad. And I, I just feel this, this sense of awkwardness. And then it's kind of silent. Like the conversation, I don't know if you, again, if you're ever in a, in a, like a rowdy conversation, the conversation kind of died. And then it picks back up because someone, someone, someone starts with something else. And it's just so awkward for me. And so I'm sitting there and I'm really thinking to myself, like, man, we, we spent probably like three and a half hours just, just hanging out together um, and just, and just kind of getting to know one another. And now I, I came home. I was really excited because I was like, man, Grace, next, next birthday party that comes up, I'll actually, I won't feel awkward because I know all the dads. We've all, we, we all got to know each other really well. You know, we bonded. But I thought to myself, really, why is it, why is it? that there is that awkwardness? Why is it that it's so tense to tell someone I'm a pastor? Why is it so tense to even tell someone I'm a Christian? Why, why do I feel like that when I'm around non-believers? And I think I've come to the answer. I think I've, I think I've figured out why. And it's, it's nothing to do with what you've done or what I've done. It's kind of just how, how Christianity has been portrayed in our country and in the world. And what I realized as I was talking to all these dads, and all these other people who are in a very similar life stage that I'm in, the reason why saying you're a Christian just kind of creates that wall, that distance between you and them is because they're good people. Like, they're really good people. And, and I think when you say you're a Christian, there's this kind of awkwardness, this tension so does that mean you're a better person than me? Does that make you better than I am because you're religious and I'm not? Are you, are you going to heaven because you're a better person than me? And you could kind of even tell that this was going very, again, very subvertly, not like it was ever to be said. But one of the things that I wanted to fight against so hard was to tell these guys, no, I am no better than you. I, I, there is nothing about me in any way that makes me in authority over you. I'm the same. Especially when we talk about our kids. We talk about our love for our kids. And it's kind of weird when guys talk about the love for their kids. But, you know, again, being all dads, we're all like, man, we, we have so much fun with our kids. And we complain about the kids, but we also talk about how great the kids are. There are times I'm hearing these guys, I'm like, man, your love for your kid is so good. It's probably even better than how much I love my kid. The way that you care for your wife is like probably better than the way I care for my wife. And so, yeah, you are a better person in, in certain ways. I'm sure you do a lot more even for your community. You do a lot more for your family than I do. So by all means, don't look at me as even thinking for a moment that I'm better than you because I'm a pastor, that I'm better than you because I'm a Christian. 
I mean, a lot of times the reason why it's awkward is because Christians have made a point, have made it a point, have made it a message that I'm better than you and I'm going to heaven and you're going to hell. And until you get better, until you fix your ways, you're going to stay in hell and I'm going to be parting it up in heaven. While you guys are all doing these sinful things on earth, I'm going to be living a life that God is going to bless and that God is going to really say, man, A plus for you and F minus for all of you. That you failed and we've succeeded. The church has stood on this platform for far too long. And it's created this distance. Today we're going to look in the book of 2 Samuel. And it's continuing this series on the gospel according to David. And really the reason why I'm in the book of 2 Samuel doing this message, doing this series on a, a, a book found in the Old Testament um, is because I like to go back and forth from the New and the Old Testament. I want to show to you, I, as a congregation, I want to show to you the Bible is not necessarily needed to be separated into these two different volumes, Old and New. And, and oh, now that we're Christians, we just believe in the New Testament. No, the whole Bible is in unison when it's talking about the Lord. And so the reason why we're going in the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel, these books talking about the life of David, is I want to prove to you, I want to show to you the gospel that's found in the New Testament is also found in this one. And I want to show to you today, I want to teach to you today an aspect of faith, an aspect of what it means to be a believer that is so crucial and so vital, especially as we are in contact constantly and consistently with a world of disbelief. So if you would open up your Bibles with me or follow on a screen behind me. 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, Now when the, king of, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. This is King David. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. And cedar is this very special wood that had to be imported. It's, not, it's, not, um, for, it's very foreign to the land of Israel. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Let's pause there for a moment. Um, so basically the scenario is this. David is, is in a time of peace. You know, there's no wars going on. Everything's, everything's very calm. You know, he, he's known to be a warrior. He's gone into battle so many times, time and time again. And the Lord has blessed him and he's been victorious. And so now all his enemies have been defeated. He's kind of just sitting in his house. And, and after all his, uh, his enemies are defeated, he does the, the thing that's, that's natural. He's like, let's remodel this house. And so he gets this uh, fine imported cedar from far off that's very expensive. And he's able to build this palace for himself. And as he's in his palace and he's in his, his new crib, he's just like, hey, something's wrong. Something feels, I feel, I feel kind of weird. Because I'm in this really nice house. This amazing palace that has been built with this super fine imported wood that was super expensive. And God is still in the Ark of the Covenant under a tent. And David's like, man, this just doesn't feel right. Like God, God has been with me for so long um, and he's helped me all these years. I, I should pay him back. You know, I really, I really should give back to God because of how much he's blessed me. You know, I, I really, man... Wouldn't God be so happy with that? Yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm going to do God a solid, and I'm going to build him a house. 
Nathan, his, his pastor, the, the prophet, the guy who's kind of been his spiritual mentor, is like, David, that's a great idea. Do all that your heart desires because you just want to, to pay God back. You want to, to respond. And I think that's all, I think up to this point, it's all great. It's all wonderful. I, I, think, I think David's heart in this is right. He, he's right to want to respond to what God has done, to the victories that God has provided, that it's right for David to respond in that way. But I think there was a part of David that was still a little arrogant. A little bit arrogant. Again, it's right. Don't get me wrong. It's right that David wanted to respond to God's blessing in his life. He was sitting in his amazing palace and he's like, I want to give back to the Lord. That's great. But I think there was a part of David. There was a part of David that's like, man, I'm so successful. I'm so, I'm so powerful. I'm king. Look, I've brought peace to the nation. Everything's going well. Everyone loves me. My, my approval rating is 100% because I've killed everyone who's, who's, who's been against me. <laughs> um, you know, every, everything's going well. Everything's good. So now, now that everything's good, let me bless God back and maybe he'll bless me even more. You know, it's kind of this reciprocal relationship. And, and, and I think God responds. And let's, let's go to verse 4 in 2 Samuel 7. And it's a long passage, but please, as you're used to by now, uh, just bear with me and, and kind of just focus on the word of the Lord. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan the prophet. Go and tell my servant, David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, my people Israel. Verse 9. And I've been with, you for, been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So this, this is a monologue that God is giving to Nathan to tell to King David. And I love how it begins. It, it basically is God telling uh, David, first of all, remember, Nathan, tell this to my servant, David. And this is really important that he begins even this explanation of David as his servant. This monologue, this 
speech that God is giving to Nathan to give to David is, up until this point, one of the longest monologues that God has ever spoken. So up until this point, the only other time God has spoken this much was to Moses. And Moses was back in the book of Exodus, a long time before this. So God rarely ever even spoke to the prophets in this long of a statement. It was 197 words in Hebrew that God is telling the prophet Nathan. And so it's very important when you have such a long passage that God is saying, and that's even why I wanted to read to it, it to you. And what is very important about this, this speech is that it is God reminding David that God has made covenant with the people of Israel. And more importantly, God is making covenant with David. And again, today's sermon title is Covenant because I want to tell you what a covenant is. A covenant, especially when it was, or particularly when it was written in the Bible, and it talks about a covenant being made between two parties, we have to understand it, not from our modern-day idea of what a covenant even is, because who knows what a covenant even means in our culture, but a covenant back then was always made between a party of power and a party with no power. It was, it was made between a king or a vassal or a lord or someone who was in rule of land and the people living on the land. And in this covenant, the person in power, the person in charge, the ruler of the, of the place, would make an unconditional promise, an unconditional statement unto the people that, was, that he, was, or he or she was protecting. And so a king would tell his subjects, as a king, I will make covenant with you. I will protect you. I will feed you. I will watch over you. That's the end of the covenant. There's never a conditional statement attached to a covenant. That's more like a treaty. That's more like a promise. That's a different word that you would use for that when it's a conditional statement. And there are conditional statements that are found between God and his people. If you do this, I will do this. And yes, there are these conditional statements, but never confuse that with what a covenant is. A covenant is a king telling his subjects, I will forever, as long as I am able to, do this unto you. And so a king would make an unconditional promise to his people. I will do this, and there is nothing you need to do in return. Um, as I enter into wedding season, doing all these weddings for uh, these beautiful couples and, and on their great day, uh, a big idea is a wedding covenant. And it's not to say that one party is more powerful than the other, but this idea of unconditional love is very apparent in the idea of covenant. It is no matter what you do, no matter what happens to us, I will love you because we are in covenant with one another. It is an unconditional statement. It's not if you do the dishes, I will love you. It's not if you look pretty, I will love you. It's not if you have my children, I will love you. It is I will love you regardless. So God is reminding King David He's reminding him of the covenants that he's made with the, the nation of Israel. And now he's making a new covenant with David. And he's saying, I will make your house. I will make your house reign forever. See, David is saying to God, Ooh, God, I, I, you know, do you see how strong I am? Do you see how rich I am now? Do you see how prosperous I am? How great I am? I'm going to make you a house, God. And this is why I say that, that David probably had a little arrogance in him. That he would, he would even go to God and say to God, I'm going to build you a house because I'm so rich. I'm so powerful and I'm so good. I'm going to do this for you. And God wanted to remind David of his position. You're my servant and you do nothing for me. I do everything for you. 
And, and when you say that you're going to build my house, David, you've got it wrong. I'm going to build your house. And, and this is probably where, again, Nathan and David are probably having this conversation. It's like, God told you what? I already have my house. I, 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 I just built my house. What do you mean you're going to build my house? God is not talking about building David a house of sticks and stones. He's talking about building David's legacy, his house, his children, his lineage. That God is telling David, your house will remain forever and ever. That it will never fade away. So you, David, you offered to build me a house, but you could never offer to me what I'm offering to you. I'm saying I'm going to give you eternal life. I'm going to give you a place in the history books for all of eternity because through you is going to come an heir, is going to come someone who will sit on the throne and on the throne forever and ever. And it's through this one that I will be his father. Let me read it for you again. In verse 13, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Sounds awfully familiar to someone we talk about a lot. And the next next line is so incredibly crucial when talking about this Messiah, when talking about this heir to an eternal kingdom. It says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. When I was reading this, it kind of jarred me for a little bit. The heir, the heir of the throne to the kingdom of God is going to commit iniquity? Because it says when. And in the Hebrew, it is when. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. And I'm like, wait, wait. I thought this was talking about Jesus. I, I thought this was, I thought this, this prophecy, this covenant was saying that God was going to make the name of David, the legacy, the house of David last forever and ever through this heir who is perfect Jesus. So the, the verse before that, the line before that is, is that I will be his father and he will be my son. I'm like, yeah, that sounds a lot like Jesus. Jesus called himself the Son of God and called God his Father. That seemed very right. But this next, this next line says, when he commits iniquity. But Jesus never committed a sin. And that is absolutely right. But I think this covenant, when God was speaking, he didn't mischoose his words. I think it points to something even more profound. Is that when Jesus lived his perfect life and he was on the cross, He bore the weight of sin for all of us. All of our sin was placed on Jesus. And there's something beautiful about even this covenant that's found in 2 Samuel, written a long time ago, that when Jesus was on the cross bearing all of our sins, God does not see the sin that was put on Jesus as your sin or my sin. He sees it as Jesus' sin. He sees it as his iniquity, as his, as his sin, as his evil, that all the wrong things that have been happening on this earth, that Jesus on the day when he was crucified bore the sins of the world, not, not just as a placeholder, but he bore the sins. He took ownership of the sins. So everything you've done wrong, 
every fault you've done, every rebellion you've made against God, God, if you have given your life to Christ, God no longer sees that sin as yours. He saw that sin as Jesus' sin. And he punished him. He disciplined him accordingly. And the next verse is even more so the gospel according to David because in verse 15 it says, But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You see what I'm learning even to this day when it comes to our relationship with the cross and with Jesus a profound thing is I, I, I think I think something amazing is going to happen when we die and we are on the judgment, judgment throne judgment seat and, and Jesus is sitting there and he's going to you know, go through all of our lives and, and, and see if we're good or if we're not and this is really where I think of my non-Christian friends these non-believing, these non-believing people I think at the end of the day, we're all going to look really similar. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I think everyone's going to kind of be on a very, in relative, like in, in, in comparison to each other, everyone's going to be really like on the same level. But I think we're going to experience the depth of the cross on that day in a way that we haven't before. Because I think a lot of us understand what happened on Good Friday, we understand what happened on Easter, but I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of imagining and hoping and praying on the day of judgment, on the day when Jesus is on the seat of judgment, separating, separating the sheep from the goats, separating the wheat from the tares, that there's going to be this amazing moment where we are all goats. We are all sinful. We are all the weeds that are deserving of the fire. But there's going to come a moment where believers are going to cry out to Jesus and Jesus is going to reenact. Jesus is going to show us that all of our sins, all of our burdens are now taken on him and he becomes, he becomes what we deserve that he would lay down his life for us and we would see himself. We would see him give his life for us again. We would see, we would see and experience Good Friday all over again. The difference, the difference between non-believers and believers has nothing to do with how much sin you've done has nothing to do how good you are. has nothing to do with how much extracurricular activities you do outside of church. has nothing to do with how, how many mouths you feed or how many mission trips you've gone to. It's not about how many Bible studies you've attended to. What it's about is what God has done. That's what changes us. So if I could summarize really what I'm trying to get to when I read this covenant that God has made with David, The world looks at faith. The world looks at faith and sees it as a moment of initiation unto God. The world sees faith is that if you do good things, God will bless you. If you believe in God, if there is a God, if you do good things, God will pay you back. God will will show you a kindness because you've worshipped him, you've praised him, and therefore God will bless you. It's It's a very much I initiate, I have faith, and God will respond to my faith. No more. 
That is something we have to throw away. There's even, there's, there's even denominations. There's even whole groups of people that think, if I have more faith, God will bless me more. I want you to take that and throw it out. And listen to it never again. Because our faith is not about you initiating, but it's about you recognizing that God has already made covenant with you and that his covenant with you is unconditional. That there is nothing that you need to do or that you will do or that you have to do that God will go through and he will fulfill his covenant that he's made with you. And he's made a covenant with us through the blood of Christ that says that you have been forgiven of all your sins and that your sins are no longer yours, but they belong to Jesus and that Jesus has already paid the penalty and price. And so what is faith? If it's not about initiating faith and growing in faith and being strong in faith, what is faith? And this is really what I want to get to you. Faith is a response to what God has already done. Faith is always a response to what God has already done. Let me put this into, into practical terms. You know, I talked about these, these men uh, these dads that I, you know, I'm getting to know, I absolutely want to evangelize to them. I absolutely would love to see one of them at a church and, and to come to know Jesus. Like, how, how exciting would that be? I mean, really, to see someone who doesn't believe in Christ come to know Jesus, that's like the, the most exciting thing possible. But there's two ways to go about even evangelism with non-believers. One is, I'm going to initiate it in them. I'm going to share with them. I'm going to preach to them. I'm going to, I'm going to present the gospel to them in the best way possible. And as a preacher, I think about this all the time. How can I present the gospel in a way that is going to get them just to understand it? You know, it's so, like for me, my faith, my belief in God is not something that is just, I, I, I just believe it. And therefore, like I've gone through so much seminary now, like I've gone through so many classes that I, I, for me, it's like, it's logic. It's like, it makes sense to believe in God. It makes sense. And you can go through all the philosophical reasonings. And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, when I talk to unbelievers, I got to formulate my words in such a way that it's logical and it makes sense and it's captivating. And, and not only that, but they like me. And so that, that like they'll listen to my words and, and one day they'll be like oh I get it I totally believe in Jesus now like that's that's like my goal I want to be the initiator I want to be the one that's like God look at me God look I'm able to to evangelize and to do all these great things to all these people and see what I've done for you that is not faith what does faith look like faith is responding to what God is already doing and what I know is when you have someone in your life who doesn't know Jesus and you want them to know Jesus, it doesn't matter how many times you throw the Bible at them. It doesn't matter how many times you buy them lunch. If the Holy Spirit, if God is not working in their life, they will never receive the gospel. And so instead of us trying to shove it down their throats, wouldn't you just pray that God would reveal themselves, would reveal himself to him or her? Wouldn't you pray that God would be the initiator? That God would be the, the one doing all of the quote-unquote hard work because it's only God who can transform souls. Not you and not me. So what is our job? If it's not to go out and initiate all these things, what is our job? And this is the beauty of church. This is the beauty of fellowship. Our job is simply to respond to God's goodness. Our job is simply to respond to what God has promised he will do. 
Our job is only to hope for the, the completion of the gospel, that Jesus would return and he would come back and make all things new. That is our only job. Our only job is to be here and encourage one another in times of trouble that God is still the one in control. Our job is in times of prosperity to remind one another that God is, is even better than the prosperity that we experience here on this earth. In the most practical way, I need us to understand this, especially as we purchase a building. This building, our church, our church is not, our church will not do anything good. Our church cannot do anything good on our own. All our church can do is respond to what God has done. All our church can do is to help others see and realize the goodness of Christ. It's just because we're buying a building, please don't pat ourselves on the back and say what a good job we've done. I think God is saying the same thing to us. Who are you to say you're building me a house? I'm the one that's going to build you a house. So as we move into this new building, as the months go on and we do construction and all these things, I want us to remember deep in our hearts that the most important building that's being built is inside of your heart and my heart that is not being built by men or women, but it's being built by the Lord Most High. And I really think, in my heart of hearts, if we create a culture in our church where it's not about being these grand initiators of faith, where we're, we're saying, oh man, look at how many missionaries we're sending, look at how many homeless people we're feeding, look at how many Bible studies we're having, look at, look at how good our youth group is, look at how good our children's group is. If our church just becomes a place where we say, look at what Jesus has done. And that is the center point of our church. Then I think God will bless us. It's not about us. It's all about him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the promises that you've given us. Lord, I thank you that you've made a covenant of unconditional love unto us that we are not obligated to do anything. That, Lord, that you are the one who is going to accomplish your unconditional love unto us. So give us a faith to respond to what you've already done. Take away all of our pride, all of our arrogance. Take away all of the, all of the things that are unnecessary and give us a pure worship, one that is purely looking at only you and you alone. Father, I pray for our ministry, especially as we move and prepare to move and fundraise for all these things. I pray that we would trust in you now more than ever. That we would trust in you above all else. Father, that our work here on this earth is not so that you would love us more, but our work on this earth is because you love us the most. Father, let our worship be a response unto how good you are. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.